I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, hello everyone and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. I'm Ed Malian and today we will be dissecting London's weekend of shame, a goalless effort from the capital's six clubs while Manchester reasserted its authority over the title race. But needless to say, I am wholly unqualified and nowhere near capable of doing this alone in what would be a monologue of Stephen Davis-inspired sadness. And thus, I present to you two of the independent's finest, Miguel Delaney, chief football writer and birthday boy. Hello. Hello. How will you be celebrating your 40th? Uh, I celebrate 40th. <laughs> <laughs> I've already celebrated it at the weekend. Yes, now you look like it. Yeah. And also to Jack Pitbrook, bienvenue and welcome. Hi, Ed. Um, and to the football, okay, I guess. Uh, biggest game of the weekend. You were both that, and it produced precisely zero goals, one batting order, two points shared, and three points now the gap between the Manchester clubs and the rest of the top. So, Miguel, what is our one biggest takeaway from a goalless draw at Stamford Bridge? Uh, I was actually, I think it's a good point for Arsenal, more so than Chelsea, just because of the fact that you know they've gone so long without uh, winning at Stamford Bridge. And I have to say, I was actually surprisingly impressed with Arsenal's performance. Uh, they were a lot better than I thought it would be. Seemed to almost have a bit more of a game plan than Chelsea, and it had the better chances. Uh, Chelsea did improve when Hazard came on, but I was a bit disappointed with Chelsea just because I thought from the last few games, and I was at the game against Carabag and Spurs and Everton, and they looked like they were kind of picking it up again, that they were get, getting back to summer last season, but uh, they're, they're pretty flat uh, on Sunday. Do you think that Chelsea sometimes, because I think last year so much of their goal scoring was thanks to Eden Hazard and Diego Costa, now they've lost Costa... When Hazard isn't fit, the yeah. team sometimes struggles to to create chances well, did, in the same way. This is a big thing I was actually thinking of yesterday. It really struck me. I think Morata's a very good player, but he's a very good player in a certain system and a certain supply. Whereas Costa was um, almost... Uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it. He was almost kind of Cantona-like, especially in last season's run when they really won the title, where he would get a goal... The, the game was kind of... Nothing was happening in the game, and he would get a goal out of nothing to basically win it. Like, I think... Um, one classic example is the the one 0 win over West Brom, uh, and there were, there were a few others like that. And Chelsea seem to lack that at the moment, unless uh, Hazard is on the pitch. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that Morata is very elegant mm. and obviously very good, but I think that he doesn't have that like maybe the, the same cutting edge that Diego Costa yeah. gives you that ability to you know chase down a defender, uh, nick a ball off him, then run straight at goal, that kind of mm. thing. And I think because of that, he almost need you know. He needs the chances to be created for him, yeah, yeah. perhaps more than Costa would do, and that means that if the team aren't creating chances, then there there's this kind of flatness basically, yeah. and I think that's probably the problem that Chelsea ran into yesterday. Yeah, I mean, if you think, well, if you think of the, the kind of classic goals that both strikers score, I mean, with Morata, it's a header basically from kind of six yards out or seven yards out, kind of glanced into the into the corner. With Costa, the one I think of with him is always going to he'll win the ball kind of near the byline. And kind of cut through and go and kind of even slide under the keeper. The amount of times we've seen him do that for Chelsea, uh, and that kind of sums up the difference between them. He's more of a ball carrier, Costa, in, in yeah. a way that he doesn't look like a traditional guy who's going to be a, performing a lot of dribbles. But he basically picks up the ball and he drives towards goal with with power and purpose. Yeah. Which 
Morata, I think uh, you're right, Jack, he's very elegant to watch. Um, and he picks up the ball and then he's probably going to just lift his head and, and try and pick someone running mm. either side or, or perhaps just you know give it, give it back to one of the midfielders. And I think that is fine because mm. it's just a different style of player and that's what you sign up for. However, you can now see possibly why they wanted Lukaku. That was a bit rather, yeah. Yeah, Because, you know, he is that more like Costa in terms of he is a guy who barrels towards hmm. goal. He's a, he's a guy who's just, his, his presence is enough to be really off-putting. Whereas, you know, one of the things with Morata I noticed at Real Madrid is defenders seem to forget about him. That's why hmm. I think he gets in so many good positions for headers. Yeah. He, te- he seems to be able to drift off defenders kind of, he's a bit more ghost-like. Whereas yeah. Costa and Lukaku, you can't ignore. Yeah, yeah, completely, yeah. The, the one thing I would say about, I mean, I think it's one of Conte's strengths, and we saw it last season, that he will, even though he had an idea for his team in Lukaku, there's no better manager kind of adapting then to what he has. We will kind of find a way to make this work, I would say. But yeah, it, 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 it does completely raise that question over, he obviously had this idea for Lukaku, uh, and it's going to be fun, I suppose, when Chelsea play United and we just do these endless, uh, or we see these endless no, of features. Course, about, of course, <laughs> um, Do we think, you know, there's still 0% chance of... Um, Conte bringing Diego Costa back into the fold, it just seems impossible, right? Yeah, I can't, I can't see it, to be honest. Even though, I mean, needless to say, it would boost their chances of winning any trophies. It, well, I, I suppose this is, this is almost kind of classic Conte in that sense, and that on this sort of thing, he's a, he's a fundamentalist, actually. The, the opposite of his, maybe his approach to players, well, sorry, his approach to tactics, but when it comes down to how players deal with him, um, <laughs> he's, he's hard line. No, he is hard line, bending. Um, Jack, you wrote a piece focusing a little bit more on Arsenal, I guess, uh, coming out of that game. Uh, how do you think, you know, people are saying it's a good point for them and almost, I mean, okay, fair enough, away at any of those top clubs, you'd always take the point, I guess. But is it, there's a way talking, people are talking about Arsenal, it's almost as if they're kind of a, a poor relation now, you know, whether, as, almost as if they're not part of this, this top, maybe it's a top five. Um, and do you think that was reflected in, in the way they played on Sunday? Yeah, I think that's absolutely absolutely right. I think Arsenal are very much the beneficiaries of low expectations now. Like for games like, I mean, this game and the reaction to it reminded me a bit of both the FA Cup semi-final hmm. and the FA Cup final, where afterwards people were like, wow, amazing. Arsenal, they defended, they played as a team. It's they, almost patronising, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it's the way that you would talk about someone when you were really surprised that he could achieve a basic level of competence. Um, and that, like Miguel getting here on time. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. like it's amazing. Miguel was here at 9.30am. Um, I'm not comfortable with this bander. <laughs> but, I mean, that is ultimately Arsenal's problem, is that they have played so badly in games like this. Like everybody, Everyone knows that they'd lost five in a row at Stamford Bridge. Everyone remembers the 6-0. Um and because of, or even the 4 0, I mean, the, you know, it's not ancient history. They lost 4 0 at Liverpool a few weeks ago. Mm. But this means that when they do play properly, everyone every, everyone is kind of weirdly proud of them <laughs> for, for doing so. Hold on. Um, Patent head. Like what it tells us about Arsenal in the long term, I mean, I'd be, su- I'd be surprised if they can if they can play that well all the way through the season defensively, just because it seems to me like it's almost something which they do when their backs are against the wall yeah. or to prove a point yep. rather than something which is like deeply ingrained into well, the group it, in it, a way that Conte has ingrained those standards yeah. into his group. Just the thing, I mean, when in the build-up to this game, I was doing a piece on on you know, Chelsea and Arsenal, the endless the, the, the themes that we've seen run through this fixture, um, and also Arsenal's poor away record. Uh, in these big games, and I went, I went back to the last win, which is City away in what January, February, twenty fifteen. And even looking at Wenger's quotes after the game, the way he kind of, you know, 
it was painted as just such a transformative moment. He talked about, well, I had to go with the feeling of the players, and because you know, I think that game they went more counterattacking. They had Cockerham performing a specific role, and the, and it is, what it is what you're saying that it was a response to this sort of thing. Like, okay, well, we've done that now, and but but they never continued with it. it no, exactly. Yeah, the, it's not it's not ingrained in in how mm. they work and how they and how they plan. It's just a kind of it's almost like a one off, and mm. they feel like having done it, they then. You know, it's like going to the gym once and then feeling really proud of doing it. They're not going to the gym again for a month. <laughs> oh, yeah, so that, like, that's well, me. Yeah, um, but yeah, like I, I think that it, it, we, you can't trust Arsenal to do it again next week, and you can't trust Arsenal to go and win their next few away games. I think ultimately, yeah. And I don't think that this means that. I'd be, I'd be very surprised if this is, you know, a few months time we're looking at this as their kind of turning point. But, for a strong yeah. title challenge, and this—I mean, this was actually uh, even. I, mean, I remember last week in trying to kind of uh, come up with ideas and even write a piece for our, for our dear editor and, of course, our, our, our readers. Um, Principally, that, the readers. Yeah, so. yeah it, it was it, it was it was a struggle to uh, to actually think of something new because ultimately, when, when you discuss that with Arsenal, like, any issues like I don't know, you know, tactical naivety or those poor records, you can't escape the fact that all, you, you you can't really analyse these things in the way you would other teams because it all comes back to the same fundamental issue the manager and the manager's deeply ingrained approach in, in, in his own ideals and it's all been said numerous times Ex- now. exactly there are pieces uh i remember reading three four years ago mm. about you know how this is Wenger's last chance almost and yeah. it, and it, you know it, it, it isn't it, and, yeah. and we're getting to the point where everyone's kind of there is a feeling of resignation around mm. arsenal uh, it brings me back to um some news from last week so olds i guess um, about Meza Ozil's contract, and they said that there's been no major talks since spring on that. Mm. So if Arsenal are in this sort of sleepwalk towards the fifth, sixth place, they're going to lose Meza Ozil, and they're going to lose Alexis Sanchez for free, which would be potentially pretty devastating. Just because you know, on, on a basic level, they've decided they don't want to sell these guys for any money; they want to keep hold of them, and they aren't using them. <laughs> So, so what does it mean for Arsenal if they do lose Meza Ozil and Alexis Sanchez for free at the end of the season? How on earth do they recover from that to try and mount another assault on the top four? Well, they'll have to. Obviously, they'll have to spend a lot of money. They, um, I think they have the capacity to, to do that. I know that they they run in. They've got the cash flow. Yeah, they've got the cash. Um, Premier League like short term cross control slightly restricted what they could do this summer, but obviously. When Özil and Sanchez leave, they will be saving the best part of three hundred thousand pounds a week in salary. So, but they will have to kind of rebuild, and I think that is why, in a sense, they missed an opportunity uh, this summer to sell Sanchez yeah. for sixty million pounds yeah. to City and get in a replacement. Like I, I know I, I don't know, want to re, don't want to relitigate the transfer window too much, but obviously, if they if they had got say Thomas Lamar or someone younger. And sold Sanchez, mm. then they would be in a better position, I think, sort of three or four and years. And down they wouldn't line. have all this hanging over them either. This, like even even yesterday when he wasn't in a certain lineup, just this kind of the discussion and the, uh, and, and just the way all this noise kind of kind of further clouds their season. Yeah, and brought you know on top of everything else, Özil and Sanchez are very good players. Uh, I think Özil is one of those. He's been a, a, a weird one for his yeah. duration, the duration of his time, because he almost. He splits Arsenal supporters in the way that he's at sometimes just like a ghostly sort of figure who mm. waltzes through games and is invisible. And then also the hardline fundamentalists who are desperate to defend everything he does as, as being far beyond what you know yeah, the average yeah. fan can comprehend. We're, we're all too thick to understand yes, the no, passes. Yeah. And certainly, you know, 
any criticism of him is often met with that. But it, it, I think his time at Arsenal will be hard to define because he was a kind of change in Arsenal's philosophy mm. when they went out and spent all that money on him. And then to lose him for nothing, having had the time he's had in London, would be a very confusing way, really. To, like, I don't know how mm. you judge that transfer. But the biggest thing for me, if you're looking at it, is this is all going to reflect so badly on Wenger. Yeah, yeah. Although the, uh, the bigger question as well is, um, where will he go? Now, uh, to be fair, if he is, if he's on a free... Bayern Munich. I mean, you get Juventus. In. There's going to be loads of clubs who are interested on a on a Bosman, basically. Yeah, on a Bosman. They don't have to buy him, with, like, as we would say, yeah. You can give him five mil up front and then pay him 200 grand a week, and mm. it's still much cheaper than buying a yeah. player of his calibre on the open market. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I think uh, buying it, as I say, is an obvious answer because... Well, like Mourinho could go back in as well. You you think that would happen? Yeah, I wouldn't be completely surprised. Well, well, yeah. you know, I suppose United do have a lot of that sort of player, but then United have a lot of players actually like that who Mourinho doesn't ever seem to completely 100% trust in the way he trusted Ozil at Real Madrid. If you're looking at it from a value perspective, he will be one of the best value players on the market, you've got to say, next summer, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, th- I wonder if he's... I kind of get the impression that he hasn't done his reputation any favours during his spell at Arsenal. I feel no, like he no. was... All, I think he, he probably saw Arsenal as a you know, bridging point to another big club and, you know, he's now been there a few years and none of the top clubs particularly keen on him. But we're thinking during the summer... But what you just said there is exactly the point, is that Arsenal aren't considered one of those top clubs. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, I'm sure he wouldn't have, you know, when he was at Real Madrid, he wouldn't have been dreaming of a move to Arsenal. And he ended up there and thought, well, you know, if if I work hard for two or three years, then... I can go to Bayern or Barcelona, yeah. but it's not how it's happened. But, but the interesting, even like, I suppose, I think there are two interesting things from that. First of all, if you think about it as well, to ultimately be discarded by Real Madrid must be a bit of an ego blow to a player because you, you, you are at the biggest club in the world. Even whatever was going on at Madrid at the time, although he left the year after they won the title, so they're kind of back where they were. Um, but yeah, so I mean, the only step is down unless it's, unless it's basically going to Barcelona. But secondly, in terms of his. Um, his role at the club. I mean, from what you hear, and from what when he was at Real Madrid, especially under Mourinho, it was said that he had what was tactically the most difficult role in the squad, and he had he had the biggest uh, he had the most responsibility of any player on the team because he had to. You know, I think there was the phrase used was he had, he had to interpret attacking moves from a from a defensive perspective or something, something like that. Basically, but he was the one that had to bridge it, bridge kind of Mourinho's reactive approach then with with creating attacks. So like that, that was a huge burden from it. It, it. it took a lot of concentration, and he went from that then to what is essentially kind of the complete opposite of Arsenal, which is basically a, a free role where he generally gets to float. Yeah, and I think at the end, what we're going to see from, from Ozil, if he does leave, is that he's going to get a big chance somewhere else. It's going to be a big signing for someone else. But it will leave a hole at Arsenal because it just damages the the view of them from the outside. Yeah. Um, are there any other... I mean, obviously... But even just in terms of Ozil as well, I just think, I mean, in terms of the trajectory of his career, obviously he has... He's he's won, won the biggest of all the World Cup, and yet I actually can't remember too much he did in that World Cup or or the final. In terms well, of kind of, wasn't he man of the match in the final? Was he? Uh, I don't know. I, I thought I saw someone mention it. I mean, Goethe was the the guy who won the game. Yeah. I can't remember. I I, th- I thought I saw someone mention that he was man of the match in the World Cup final. But he he is a guy who, for me, has underachieved because yeah, that's what I'm getting. Even at, at Real Madrid, even mm. at Real Madrid, I know he scored. Wait, sorry, he set up a lot of goals for Ronaldo, yeah. which was basically just pinging it to the back stick and Ronaldo heading it home. He's a guy who throughout his career had always been the best and had mm. always overachieved. And he got to Real Madrid and kind of hit a ceiling and then came to Arsenal. And then you'd expect him to be one of the be- Wait, better guys there. So and he, he never really... 
so was. Someone put this, this stat to me the other day about that in, in 2015 16, he created more chances in the, but than any other player in the Premier League by actually. But I wonder, does that go something to something the Jack report on recently? Was it, was it with a. Uh, yeah, it was basically Arsenal, like analysis of Arsenal's XG shows that it it is much, much better in games where they're like two or three nil up mm. than. Uh, like, in, in tight games where they struck where they where they tend to struggle and therefore even though their overall numbers like averaged out over a season or more might suggest that they're one of the best teams in the country the reality is that there's so much so much of it is to do with like ludicrous dominance in mm. games that they win four nil rather than like consistently being good and putting yourself in a position to win games it's an interesting point i was talking to a german agent recently and he said that one of the big tenets of, of coaching mm. young german players particular generation that just won the World Cup is their the use of space, the efficient use of mm. space. And um the two best uh, at doing this, he said, of that generation were Mesut Ozil and Thomas mm. Muller. Thomas Muller yeah. has always been this sort of guy. Barney Rone wrote a brilliant piece about it about mm. three, four years ago, about he's the uh the the round deuter, you know, the guy who yeah, just, yeah. who drifts and he finds these little pockets out of nowhere, you know, yeah, yeah. particularly well, in the penalty. It's area. amazing because actually a few about three years ago when I was doing this big piece um on Irish football and its failures. Now, obviously, Ireland's a different con- context to Germany, but one Irish coach who'd worked in Europe was pointing exactly, and he pointed out to when, when Germany battered Ireland 6-1, now, as they're going to do, he said, there was one run that Thomas Muller made in that game. It was only about 15 yards, and it immediately took four players out of the game. And he said, that's just the sort of thing that, is, that comes from good coaching. Like I say, he's been, he's been specifically taught how to make that run, which is exactly what you're saying. And, and Ozil, I think, is actually quite an efficient user of space. Mm. He drifts into these little pockets that pin defenders where they are or mm. whatever. And when you go ahead in a game and the other team are having to push on and stuff, mm. I think that he is very, very good at exploiting those spaces mm. to to stretch teams out of place. And then that's why you see when Arsenal do tend to go one, two, three up, they go four, five, six. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're an incredibly good team to watch at that point. So that was it. Two more goal aside from London. Um, another was Crystal Palace, who lost their first game under Roy Hodgson to Southampton. Stephen Davis with the early and only Rob, Rob, goal. Historic there. record. Do you want to say that? No, yeah, it's uh, five defeats from five. Haven't scored a no, single no, no. goal. Um, it's ever happened. In they now need point. 38 points from the next 33 games. Uh, realistically, that's not going to happen. Uh, we, we, got, we, how do you feel about the, the Hodgson appointment? I think I think Roy Hodgson's mm. the best guy to work with that squad to give you a chance yeah. to stay up. I think if he'd had the whole season with that squad, then they would have been fine. To, he's he's basically now got to finish ninth, tenth, yeah. sort of that sort of that's how many points per game you need. Um, he's got the players to do it. Christian Benteke's kind of um, gone under the radar a bit, but he's missed four or five good chances mm. in these five games, and everything would look very different if he'd scored one of those ones early on in the second game. Um, so I think. Zaha's coming back soon. They need to start stringing together results. Mm. They've got Huddersfield next, I think, and then Chelsea, United, City. So it's one of those where if you knock off one of the good teams, yeah. maybe pick up a draw against the other, the feeling is different. Yeah, but yeah. you're already so under the cosh in terms of the amount of points that have been dropped. Yeah, yeah. 15 points under it, four points away from the safety already. Uh, the only thing you have on your side is time mm. uh, in the, the stage at Crystal Palace in. Uh, a team that we've been kind of praising recently another London team who didn't score Watford on the end of a shellacking by a rampant Manchester City 6-0 the final score at Vicarage Road uh, the Hornets ran into a bit of a buzzsaw there Jack impressed yeah I mean it it's it looked an awful lot like the the game midweek when City won 4-0 at Feyenoord which I went to 
um, I think when City are good, it almost doesn't matter who the opposition are. Mm. When they're pre- when they dominate the ball like that mm. and press like that, there's kind of there's not an awful lot that you can do to stop them. And if, I mean, I remember we were talking about this last week, and I said that City hadn't been properly tested in the Liverpool game because they got away with it the first mm. half, mm-hmm. and they weren't really test. You know, and again, I didn't think they were really tested in Feyenoord, but that is uh, to a, to an extent that's a function of City playing really well. Mm. Like, is they. Uh, is they make themselves untestable almost, or they they don't give you the opportunity to test them. To open up Watford like that as well, I mean that that Watford, is a, that is a test. Been a good side this mm. season. I really I, mm. they could yeah. easily they could very plausibly finish seventh. Watford, yeah. and and it's something you said to me in midweek about the final game. You said the thing is that this is the first time really this season we've seen City pressing high, winning the ball high, you know, and that was that used to be one of the big things about the Guardiola teams is that they. They press high up the pit. They, they yeah. basically you keep you pen teams in because it's so much pressure to have to deal with, and, and that's how they knocked off Feyenoord. That's how they did it against Watford. But he's been a little bit more conservative, Guardiola, against the the stronger teams. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, I think well, he has changed this year between this three five two and the four three three, and I think what he's done, which I think surprised people, is found a way to keep Sergio Aguero in the team playing well, scoring mm. goals. He's got five goals in the last three games. And while also not really sacrificing anything in terms of pressing from the front. So that was, that is what you get when you, pl- I mean, again, a few weeks ago we were criticising the City playing 3-5-2 and I don't think it's their best system. Yeah. But if you play Jesus and Aguero together in that system, then you allow them to press from the front. Or if you do a 4-3-3 with those two and then either Bernardo Silva mm. or Raheem Sterling, then you get a similar effect. The, the one thing about that as well, I was thinking about the three five two. In if one of the massive flaws of last season, and something that Guardiola went uh, went on about a lot, was as I said the, the kind of the uh, the failure in the box, and um, that you weren't converting the chances of, of those they were creating. But I suppose uh, you know, on a very very basic level, this puts two finishers in the box now rather, rather than just one. So kind of, and I think we've seen some of the effect of that in the last two games. Yeah, two brilliant finishes, and of course, mm. and, they sh- and you know, so they should be lethal when those chances yeah. do come, which I guess is one of the one of the knocks on, on teams like Arsenal is they create all these chances and they don't necessarily finish them the whole time. City, especially at the weekend, were just brutal in front of goal. You do wonder then whether, I mean, from the, all, all the talk you hear about how Guardiola works, I mean, I think we've discussed this before, you know, it's div- dividing the pitch into 20 areas. So players have to gradually learn to understand how to play with the ball, but where to move in relation to with the shape. Whether it is beginning to kind of click now on a deeper level for some of their better players yeah it's i think i think there is a lot of learning going on like the players understand the concepts they understand the positioning it's Mm. all they're now so well drilled that a lot of those runs are instinctive and they don't have to they don't have to keep or basically it's easy for them to remember now where they're meant to be at any Mm. given time also from um, speaking to someone yesterday who said that uh within that kind of grid system that Mm. guardiola trains with the two who are allowed to do what they want, more or less, and go into whichever zone are David mm. Silva and Kevin De Bruyne. Mm. And I think what we've seen so far this season is that De Bruyne, I mean, Silva is as good as he's ever been, really. Yeah. Whereas De Bruyne looks to be making that step to being the best player in the country. Yeah. I mean, again, he was like that at the beginning of last season. But this year, I think he, he's been even better so far. I mean, it, there's no reason to suggest that he shouldn't go on from here and win you know win player yeah. of the year football mm. of the year this season he's the most you know with all due respect to Paul Pogba De Bruyne is the most complete player in the country mm. you know he's quick strong technically good 
uh, scores goals, gets assists, uh, can play in lots of different positions. Yeah. His uh, set piece delivery, by the way, is unbelievable. Well, his, his whole strike, I don't think it's only in the Premier League now that strikes a ball as purely as he does. And a classic example, I think, his goal against Manchester United last season, 2 one at Old Trafford, just to kind of just how, how sweet he hit it. He's making free kicks from non-dangerous positions mm-hmm. into basically yeah. incredibly dangerous situations um, very regularly. Uh, I, I think the interesting thing, I, I was talking to an Argentine journalist fairly recently who, who knows Aguero quite well, and one of the suggestions I got, uh, which makes a lot of sense for me, is that basically that Aguero is uh, 29, 30, around that he's, age now? He's, he's 29. 29. He's three days older than me. Okay, it's a good age. Uh, he's 29, <laughs> and he is... His entire life, he came to the Independiente first team at 16, moved to Atletico Madrid so as a teenager. He's always basically just been a player who just thrives on instinct. And his instinct has always been really, really good. And he's always mm. been good enough to just carry off a career doing that. Uh, and he's done very well. But the Guardiola way is you can't really go purely on instinct. Because as mm. Miguel said, that it's, there's lots of zonal uh, concepts to, to take in. There's lots of different things like the pressing and stuff, which isn't what his natural instinct is to do. And as a 29-year-old player who's been playing professional football for 13 years and has been doing it in, in different leagues yeah. and, and stuff and, and has always had success doing what he just naturally wants to do. There have been other players like Leroy Sané who have come through the German factory of mm. footballers who are used to being coached into these things. And, you know, it's like, oh, OK, you need to, need to learn this new zonal system with, with grids and stuff. Great, I can do that. Not a problem. For Aguero, it's been more of a struggle. Yeah. Um, and this really made a load more sense to me when, when I was explained it this way. And I think... You know, he's kind of getting to grips with it a little bit now. You can imagine it, uh, the frustration of that as well. Like, it must be difficult. Yeah. It must be difficult. Uh, you know, he's a human being after all. Mm. And, and then someone like Gabriel Jesus comes in, who's just obviously unbelievable talent. Mm, yeah. And and he's going to be just much more malleable, I guess, for for the coach, the guy who can be molded into what you want. So I think um, you know, Jack's been saying this to me all season that part of the thing with Jesus and Aguero is he's trying to get Aguero into this guy who can press. Yeah. And I feel like. If they can get him there, then they've just got so much firepower. Yeah, well, I, I just, on a wider issue, I mean, Sancho's their big project this summer. Guardiola really, really wanted him. And now it looks like, did they even need him? Like, it, it, I think it would have been, I mean, it's, it's, it is hard enough to fit in mm. Sancho, sorry, to fit in Aguero and Jesus together. And they've had problems with, you know, the fact that Aguero obviously doesn't like being benched, but will have to be benched a fair bit. If you throw in San, I mean, Sanchez would only really make sense if you could get rid of Aguero. Yeah. And I think I think Guardiola would be willing to do that mm, to get Sanchez would, yeah, yeah. to get rid of Aguero, but other people at City wouldn't. Yeah. But if you were, if they were to get Sanchez and not lose Aguero, mm. then I just don't see how it'd work. Like well, it, the Sterling, the Sterling leaving made a bit of sense but mm. then you have to play Sanchez in one of the wide positions in the 4-3-3 I guess but I think about Sterling I think when he think about him like, he's so young that he does feel as if he's another one of these players like Sané I suppose that City have bought not just for this manager but for, for the future so well when they signed him you know, he's a young guy and you spend £50 million on him mm. it doesn't work out that badly if you keep him for seven years yeah. so it works out like £7 million a year um, in the same way that kind of going large mm. on, on Wayne Rooney at that age and Rio mm. Ferdinand at the age when he went to Man United. Works out. So I think City's big need. If they buy a central defender in January, I think they can do the whole lot. Mm. I really do think. Really, Champions League as well. Obviously, the Champions League is, is the most difficult, but yeah. this attack is is yeah. real. Um, if they could buy a really good central defender in January, and I know that's difficult. That is really difficult well, to actually, do. Even in relation to the Champions League, I suppose, I mean, the la- I suppose... 
the last half decade or more, it's been, as we know, dominated by Real Madrid, Bayern and Barcelona. I think they've they've won all the last them all since 2013. Ever since Chelsea, yeah, since 2012, yeah. and they've always they've, they're usually all three of them in the semi-finals. But if you I suppose, look at that that cast at the moment, Barca have huge problems. Even though, despite their initially uh, good start to the Spanish league, they've lost Dembele for a few months. They're beatable, even even with Messi and Bayern. It's it's something not quite right. There seems to be a lot of disfaction about Carlo Ancelotti. Yeah, um, I suppose they're likely to change maybe at the end of the year. Feels like Nagelsmann's gonna yeah. end up there, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, and then Real, I suppose it's you know it's, it, it's a cup competition, which which it is. Uh, w- one bad day, and suddenly the best laid plans can. Go out. So I'm sure Guardiola would back himself to beat either a team man- a team managed yeah. by Ancelotti, a team managed by Zidane, yeah. or the worst Barcelona team for about 15 years. Yeah, yeah, pretty true. Yeah. So it, it is intriguing for me, but as I say, it do, it does hinge on them buying a centre back because mm. you can't rely on Vincent Company to stay fit. It's just the reality of the situation, mm. and Nicolas Otamendi is too slow. Yeah, he, he doesn't fit. He's even he's struggling he, the Liverpool game. I thought he could be good. Oh, he's and, awesome and the Bournemouth game. game. Yeah. And the Everton game, yeah. he, he is. I mean, when they bought him from Valencia, he was just playing in a completely different system. And you know, this is basically a, a, a coach who has made famous having a high line and pressing. Yeah, yeah. That is not Nicolas Otamendi's game. It never yeah. has been. It, I'm afraid it never will be. So it does feel like he's a bad fit. I almost want them to give more of a chance to Mangala because I think. He's a guy who's athletic enough to be able to yeah, yeah. do that. It's just that his decision making and and he's probably not good enough just on the ball in general. I, I fear. Um, but that's Man City six nil winners at, at Watford, um, the fifth London club to draw a blank with Tottenham. Drew nil nil at home to Swansea. Another good result for Paul Clement, uh, who uh, has done very well since he took over in Wales. And the sixth to West Ham, will probably be happy with a goalless draw at West Brom in the Clasico del Oeste. Uh, six London teams. Zero goals from the weekend's first nine fixtures, and then Manchester United Everton to wrap up the weekend. Mm-hmm. Miguel, uh, we thought it'd be close, but it was anything but. Uh, I don't know. I've thought it'd be close just because Everton have been so bad this season. And you know, and United when um, when it when it clicks for them, they have been very good. And I, I do think without wanting to do down United, I think yesterday was a similar game to uh, the, the West Ham one. Yeah, and and, 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 and Swansea one to an extent. That just the, the opposition. You think Everton are that bad then? No, they're not that bad. Well, they are going through, as in they're going through a bad spell, and they essentially collapsed yesterday. And not that it made Manchester United look better than they are, but it gave Manchester United something that they could kind of pretty much ruthlessly uh, uh, maximise, uh, which they did. Um, but Everton do have a, a lot of issues there, I think. Well, they they were dreadful on mm. Thursday against Atalanta. Dreadful um, against Chelsea. I, I was incredibly surprised Spurs. at how slow yeah. and sloppy they looked. No pressure on the ball against Atalanta, who should have been an inferior mm. team and should have been a team that they could actually either think they could beat mm. in uh, in Italy or at least at, at worst get a draw or something. They were they were properly beaten three 0 at half time, I think it was, and uh, they do look a bit slow and they do yeah. have a, a curious squad composition but, now. Uh, Sigurdsson and Rooney. There was some suggestion that Kuman was just desperate to be the man to bring Rooney back to Everton. Yeah. But no, actually, I think the Rooney thing has been okay because he's looked sharper. Uh, but you would want, like, I mean, why then go for both Rooney and Sigurdsson? And what, what, why not? I mean, surely the Sigurdsson one you would think should have been sent on, on a number nine, given that's what they're crying out for. But beyond all that, one of Kuman's strengths and something that kind of marked him out last season, and that's at Hampton, was defensive solidity and kind of be, being hard to break down. Whereas that, that just completely disappeared. Yeah, I mean, 
I completely agree. I think it's been a poorly constructed squad. I think that having Rooney and Sigurdsson and Klassen together doesn't really make any sense. Mm. Um, I think Rooney would be best off playing with a sort of big athletic number nine to make space for him, and that hasn't happened. I think you're right about the defence. I think that, I mean, they look exposed. They look very slow. Uh, I'm not very impressed with Michael Keane. No? No, who I think looks to me like someone who at Burnley was comfortable defending in a very compact team. Again, how different is, is that? You know, from Sean Dyche's Burnley to Ronald Koeman's Everton is a very, very different system yeah, to play. because if you're playing at centre-back for Burnley, obviously it's so compact that it mainly comes down to positioning in yeah. relation to your teammates. But then if you're playing for... I mean, Everton aren't the most expansive side, but they they do you know they do try and have the ball. But if you're playing for that kind of side, then you're going to have to defend one against one, and he just doesn't really look quick enough to do that. From what yeah. I've seen so F- far. Yeah, fully. No, I remember just just before the season began, I was in uh, an after panel, um, and there was a, there was a few kind of people there um, who could work at the top levels of the game. So they they were stunned at uh, Everton playing so much for Michael Keane, while Leicester got what they felt was a much better player than Harry Maguire for, for I think it was half the price. Yeah, Harry Maguire went for £17 million mm. and he's looked a great buy so far, to be honest. Um, the, the thing with Keane is, you know, Manchester United were interested in him and he actually almost makes more sense yeah. in a Mourinho team than he does a Koeman team. Uh, a lot for Everton to sort out, but I think we've we got to mention Manchester United. I know it was a little bit misleading because it was 1-0 until mm. the 83rd minute and then they kind of ran away with it. Um, There's another game they drew last season as well. Another fixture. You but can, you, know, you can look at it in that. They keep pumping teams. Yeah. You know, you know, this is pretty impressive start to the season from Jose mm. Mourinho. I think everyone was a little bit uh, sceptical. Not sceptical, maybe, but a little bit reserved about their chances. Obviously, they spent a lot of money mm. and they should be better. They're back in the Champions League. Um, and once the Champions League starts and the fixture congestion really hits, that's when we'll see the, the bigger test of them. But they've started the season thumping teams, yeah, um, keeping clean sheets. It's ominous. It, I, it <laughs> you're not convinced, are you? No, I just, I still can't. I don't know what it is. Well, I, I know what it is exactly. I think they still when you when you see them attack, it's particularly when when it's games are tight. If we are getting to that into game states and kind of suddenly when you go ahead, they still attack an individual burst, and it still it still feels a little bit. Um, Lacking fluency, but and then suddenly, then when they go ahead, then suddenly it's as if kind of they're all all the players are freer to express themselves. It's kind of Matt and Mkhitaryan kind of uh, link up in that way. Uh, I'm I'm also I mean we should be wary of early early season runs as well in the sense that there are actually a lot of examples of the past 20, 30 years of English football of teams that going Manchester United eighty five being a massive one. Um, I think when they won all those games at the start of the season, Arsenal two thousand and two. That was when Wenger first talked about doing the uh, the Invincibles. Um, United won the title that season. Chelsea in 2010-11. City last year. City last year as well. Yeah, and I think we can't just because it's just the way teams fall, or the way fixtures fall, and the way you know a team is suddenly just comes together for a certain period of time. It can just uh, like I do. I do think Manchester United will challenge. I should say, but I think this run of results is making them look a lot better than they possibly are. Do you think that they will be up there with City and Chelsea at the end of the season? Um, I keep kind of going back and forth on Chelsea, and last, um, I still think Chelsea have more, a clearer idea how they play, and, and fundamentally as well, mm. Chelsea have got a thinner squad. That's something well, that's what true, we have yeah, to remember. Yeah. Is, is, yeah. They they recruited fairly poorly in, mm. in the end, and I think 
United have got more players who I think you can just plug in. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, and I am going to get absolutely hammered for that if expressing doubt after no their, their, their third four 0 win of the season. But <laughs> I, I think it, I think it's completely fair. So we we still it's it's three points the gap. Manchester United and Manchester City are tied on thirteen, mm. and Chelsea are back on ten. Um, we're not going to call that two teams out of race quite yet with just three points a gap, but we still all feel that Manchester City now uh, are well positioned to be. Yeah, and, and they've come on a loss. Well, I mean, you were at the Burma game, and you remember you saying you saying that, like I think they were, they were kind of hammered a little bit for that performance and getting the last minute winner and all. But you said that for thirty minutes in that game they were actually excellent, were they? Yeah, they had the, they had a spell between when Charlie Daniels scored Bournemouth's first goal and then half time, mm. where Bournemouth literally didn't touch the ball mm. and City. It was one of those ludicrous displays of kind of Guardiola passing dominance. Uh, so they have they have been brilliant in spells. I I don't know. I'm still on the fence. I mean, this time last week I'd have said they won't win the title because of Otamendi. Now they've scored. You know, they've won their last Lev. three games by an aggregate of 15 nil. Um, <laughs> Seems convincing. I think they probably. Yeah, I mean, they certainly could do it. Uh, and I'm, I'm now obviously I'm now less convinced about Chelsea than I was 24 mm-hmm. hours ago after yesterday. So I'm basically going to bottle it and say it's probably a coin flip between City, City and Chelsea. Chelsea. I, 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 yeah, I think I shared some of Miguel's reservations about United. Mm-hmm. Unless I think the only way they could do it would be if neither City nor Chelsea played to their full capacity. Yeah, and United could kind of scrape over the line just with all these batterings of bad yeah. teams. I, mean, I, can't they, they, United, they, I can't see United beating a good team. Like they played yeah. one good team this year. That was Real Madrid, and they were terrible. Mm. That that's going to be the, the big test, though. and. I think uh, Phil Jones said it even after their first, second win of the season. You can't call us title contenders until we've beaten one of the big teams. And the first time they do yeah. that is it's October. They play Liverpool. Is it at Anfield? It's at Anfield. When yeah, they yeah. come back from the international break. So that'll be the big test yeah. for United. I look at well, I mean, suddenly as well, Liverpool look a lot less frightening than they did before, or nine days ago before that City game. And they haven't won in three now in our Liverpool won, Burnley won, uh, which we haven't even mentioned yeah. yet. But yeah, yeah. Mohamed Salah getting equalised after Scott Arfield had put them ahead. It is always the odd thing I find at this stage of the season when you're kind of, because it's still, what, five games in and, you know, things that could just be blips it's hard not to take to re- read into them uh, to a much greater degree, just Steve. because we don't we don't have accumulated evidence from kind of twenty games. So that to Steve Parish, um, <laughs> Bournemouth to Brighton one on Friday night. Any of you watched that? No, I was out for my birthday. No, was, so. of course you were. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Jermaine Defoe with the late winner. Actually, Brighton looked kind of decent. They they went ahead, but those two teams both struggling uh, early on this season, and uh, they're going to be down there with Palace. I think both Bournemouth uh, needed that win, Freddie Howe, because he was starting. Not getting pressure as much. I don't think Eddie Howe can get any pressure as boss of Bournemouth, but uh, struggling. Newcastle beat Stoke 2-1. Uh, Jamal Sellers with the winner there. And I think otherwise we've covered everything else off. So it's time for some readers' questions, unless you have anything to say, Miguel. Uh, just in relation to Eddie Howe, it, it does, I mean, it, it does feel as if there's a slight Wenger situation. They're not, not, not that he's obviously at the same stage as career or anything like that, but just because he is so, so secure on that job. That you'd wonder, does it make, does it allow a certain amount of complacency to come into the team? It's uh, almost the, like what we saw with Alan Pardew at Palace, actually. Um, mm. When it's someone who is loved by the board and, mm. and everyone, they, they keep giving them a little bit more rope, a little bit more rope, mm. a little bit more rope, and that can be very damaging. Mm. Um, would you, would you, does, does it feels a little bit harsh to say that on how, given what he's done at that club and when, what what they suddenly are now as a club, Bournemouth, but. Um, well, he's starting to get some return out of the Jermaine Defoe signing, yeah. at least. Uh, a valuable, valuable winner from him. Um, but yeah, let's uh, delve into our mailback. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So our first question is one that's about Tottenham. So you two are both pretty well positioned to answer it. Uh, Andrew Turner asks... Is Poch's Atletico light one-dimensional philosophy of running really quickly at an opponent and forcing the ball in running out of steam? I don't think so. I think that um, I actually think we've seen quite a lot of variation in Tottenham mm. this year in how they play. This is a subject of description. I yeah, I think that is a bit unfair. Um, I've actually written a yet-to-be-published piece about this. <laughs> um, You'll be able to read that at independent. Which looks a lot worse after Saturday. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, the the Borussia Dortmund game, I wasn't there, but... There were, yeah. But it, well, was not, it was not a typical Tottenham well, performance, was it? Well, it was a reactive performance. This is the thing. Um, yeah, I, I, was, I was talking to someone who knows the uh, the Tottenham team well, and they were saying that we were discussing the uh, why they struggled in Europe last season, and it was put to me that um, the intense style it serves so well in England and the Premier League sides have such a problem with isn't such a force in Europe because opposition sides are just more patient and they just know how to handle it better and Wednesday against Dortmund felt a response to that and I think they were a lot cannier about how they played I think he took the the risk of allowing Dortmund to maybe have more of the ball in their area but it paid off because it was st- I mean you could say Dortmund had more chances but I think there were about seven or eight occasions in that game when either Harry Kane or Son were basically just sprinting into an entirely open Dortmund half. If you trust expected goals, then then Dortmund were the better side. I I, I see your point. I think game plan obviously comes into it. Uh, The criticism I've seen of the game this weekend, the 0-0, was that they brought on Llorente, Mm. but didn't actually use his directness in the way that they can. Which is surprising as well, given how they usually respond to those situations. And given Llorente himself seeing a response to those games where Spurs just end up kind of crossing the ball into the box and it, it's just been battered away. Um, any more to add on that one, Jack? Or you yeah, I, mean, I, I think they're going to have to they're going to have to improve on their d- delivery from wide areas to really make the most out of Urense. Um Yeah, uh, fundamentally, you brought the guy in to do a particular job, so kind of make him do the job is it? Uh, my basic conclusion on that. Uh, we've got a question from uh, Liers. We actually kind of brushed on this a little bit. Are Palace already doomed? Mathematically, no, but what do you think? What is it? They have to get over one point a game now, as you said. Well, more than that, need to get 1.4 points a game or something mm-hmm. like that. It's difficult, right? Yeah. When you put in those terms, yeah. But, you know, teams have been in this, well, not quite a situation as bad as this, but having lost a lot of games early on. And yeah, no, I, so. I, uh, I fear that might be it for Palace. Um, I've got a question from a friend of the podcast, Jake Cohen. 
says, is Bakayoko and Kante the midfield pairing that we'll see more of from Antonio Conte going forward? Yeah, I think so. I think it was interesting that yesterday Conte had to do that basically because he couldn't trust Fabregas to play in a two. Yeah. Like Fab- Aaron Ramsey ran past Fabregas a few times in the in that first half. And it was it was almost a bit like when Fabregas was getting exposed f- alongside Matic for Chelsea under Mourinho. Like he just, he can't do. Yeah. You know, he's a great player, Fabregas, but he can't do that. And it was only when they had... When they had Kante, when they brought him, basically they brought him back Yoko for Pedro so that he could come in and kind of play alongside Kante and free Fabregas yeah. up from having to do any defending. Uh, and it did give them a bit more solidity, even though obviously they kind of, they lacked quality going forward. A tangent from that and a piece I could have wanted to write for next week when he, when he plays Simeone. Is Kante the manager whose uh, managerial tactical approach, the... Uh, is closest to his own playing style. And, uh, I mean, I remember talking last season about Kante and how Kante was like him, and now now he's got a kind of a, a second kind of physical midfielder in the in the middle, where it, certainly Bakayoko in contrast to Matic. Um, and he does used to, to, to love these running midfielders, which is exactly what he was. And he never had a problem, obviously, running endlessly. Yeah, uh, Kante for a variety of reasons. Uh, Diego Simeone is another guy who strikes me as he would have fitted really well into the team yeah, that he, exactly, that, yeah, that he yeah. coaches. Um, <laughs> Whereas there are others who, there was a theory, uh, a guy who sat behind me at um, Palace for years used to have that managers are actually the opposite. Because we had yeah, Pete, yeah. Pete, Peter Taylor, who was an exciting winger, mm. but presided over the most boring spell. Of, George Graham was the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And, and it's and it's kind of like a reaction to that. It's like knowing that you're knowing your weaknesses yeah. almost and trying to overreact to those. I, I, even Guardiola, I mean. I, Guardiola, the player, I, I, would he have been quite... No, I suppose it's a slightly different era, but would he have been quite... Um, well, he would have been Busquets in that uh, yeah, Barcelona I think, team, yeah, wouldn't I think he? would have done that, all, uh, what he calls organising midfielder. Yeah, role. yeah, you're, yeah. I think, I think he would probably very well. fancy himself to be a bit better than... But, he, but he, that, 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 the attack he's put together feels now so much faster than um, than the kind of the, the, the pacey player. But then I suppose, in fact, there's an argument that he's, he's actually exactly what his own city needed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got a question on Arsenal from uh, Hamish McKay. Andreas Jonker and Freddie Lundberg have been sacked by Wolfsburg. Is there any point bringing them back to Arsenal? No, Jonker was so unpopular at yeah. Arsenal when he was academy manager. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It no, was. Uh, it would. I don't think they would gain anything from doing that. I think he, all those bridges have been burnt. Yeah, it was a pretty fast flame out from them in Germany, though, isn't it? I mean, I know. Yeah, it's, it's not, it was only earlier this year that he, they went over there and they thought he was going to be the guy. Um, Everton are in the bottom three, and it's largely on merit, uh, says Dan Kennett. Uh, what do we think about their struggles? We've kind of covered this, um, but what I would say is, for the amount of money they spent, we asked, you know, have have they spent that much money to go from being the seventh best team in England to being the sixth best team in England? No. And it looks like they're not even going to be close to that. So who takes the, the fall for this eventually? Because it's almost the example of everyone that says Everton had a great summer. They spent all this money, um, but spending money for the sake of spending money is not necessarily the. He got a few of us did right at the time as well about how um, even even though I actually I was much more impressed with the signings than I am now. Um, that they, they were they were they were signing to take the team on, but not take not to make that jump because the just players just weren't weren't good enough for that that kind of leap. Um, it reminds me a little bit in that sense of um, Manchester City two thousand nine. Yeah, like they've got a manager, you know. You can easily see Kuman as a kind of Mark Hughes figure. I oh, mean, yeah. they haven't got; they're not quite as rich relative to the market as City were in two thousand eight yeah, nine. No, no. But they obviously do have a lot of money to, to throw around. A new stadium coming, lots of potential. 
And I remember, you know, in, in 2009, City had to go and buy uh, Rocky Santa Cruz, mm. Colo Torre, Emmanuel Adebayor, um, Silvino. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Carlos Tevez, admittedly, who was a level above any of the players mm. that Everson assigned this year. But that was a peculiar and, instance. Yeah, you well. do have to go through, you know, you have to get the quite good players in before you can get the really good ones yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. But I do think that it does already look as if Kuman will go the way of Mark Hughes. I've always had so. reservations about Kuman though. He's like he, for, for the way he talks himself up, especially you know, you know he's always making his his Barca ambitions so so clear. Yeah, yeah. And the way people talk about him, I think his record is not bad, obviously, but it, it's it's much patchier than someone of his reputation. Has. Yeah, if he hadn't got. I mean, we're ob- you know, it's an obvious thing to say, but were it not for his the reputation from his playing career, like his CV wouldn't get him an interview for Barcelona. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a fair point. And uh, the other thing to remember, though, is that he's not actually in charge of recruitment. Mm. It's Steve Walsh is there, who's obviously very highly rated for the job they did at Leicester. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how Fahad Mashiri and everyone on up at Everton deals with that situation. Otherwise, I think that's all we've got time for this week. Um as ever, if you uh, go to iTunes and leave a review, tell us how you think the pod is going, and we will respond to your feedback uh, in kind by just making the pod better. Um, otherwise, Miguel, thank you for joining us today. Jack, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, yeah. Any, any more words? Um, thanks a lot. No, yeah, that's it, thanks, great. Thanks for listening. Thanks, thanks for to listening. producer Tom Goulding. Yeah. Uh, thanks to Acast. Uh, we'll be back next Monday. I won't be back, but Jack Pitbrook will be your host for one uh, time only. So thank you very much, and we'll see you next week.